From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good to have you with us, and I thank you for your fine company. A special hello to all of you listening in on one of our affiliates, and I think we're up to about 35 now and still growing on both sides of the 49th. And all of you, of course, catching the podcast at TalkZone.com. Those of you who catch us on the uh, the YouTube live stream or the HOA, the, the Hangout on Air, as we call it. And, of course, uh, those who, t- who take the show with you on the uh, the Conspiracy Show app, a free download from Google Play and uh, iTunes. In just a few moments, uh, we're going to speak with the original whistleblower and eyewitness experiencer of the uh, infamous Rendlesham Forest uh, UFO event, sometimes referred to as Britain's Roswell. And uh, he's Larry Warren, the co-author of the fascinating book Left at East Gate, a first-hand account of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, its cover-up and investigation. I met Larry. We were doing a season two of the TV show. And uh, we went over to England and we did a bunch of episodes, including Rendlesham Forest. And uh, we met uh, Larry in, in London. He took the train down, very gracious uh, man, took the train down from Liverpool. Uh, and we drove down to Rendlesham in the south of England and uh, spent most of the day shooting. And uh, so this is kind of a, a reunion. And we'll get to Larry in just a moment. Speaking of the TV show, just a reminder, season four, winding down the season finale. Uh, is Monday night, 9 p.m. Eastern across Canada on Vision TV. And uh, I'm trying to do the math. It seems like I've been filming this show forever, starting in 2010, yet we're only on season four. How does that work? It's all done with mirrors, I guess. Anyway, uh, season four, Vision TV, Monday, 9 p.m. Eastern. Make sure you catch the season finale. And uh, those of you listening in from the United States, uh, seasons one through three available on Hulu and uh, also Amazon.com. And uh, one more quick item, uh, just uh, get on up to the website, strangeplanet.ca, and we've got a couple of live events coming your way, one in October with our good friend R. Gary Patterson, uh, author of Take a, a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. That's coming up on the 15th of October. Just click on uh, more info and you can buy per, uh, tickets right there online. And uh, just before that, though, September 11th, fast approaching, of course, the anniversary of 9-11, Dr. Judy Wood uh, will be our featured speaker. And uh, that is, Where Did the Towers Go? Evidence of Free Directed Energy Technology uh, on 9-11. Again, that's at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium. And uh, speaking of the J.J.R., uh, McLeod Auditorium, which is uh, right here in Toronto, beautiful facility. Uh, we have the debut, uh, the debut Canadian lecture appearance of the original whistleblower, eyewitness experiencer of Rendlesham, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Larry Warren. And um, that is happening Sunday, the 21st of August, from 1 to 4 p.m. Again, Sunday, August the 21st, 1 to 4 p.m., the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium, that's the Medical Sciences Building, One King's College Circle, and uh, if you want to get tickets for that, uh, just go to earthmysteries.com, earthmysteries.com. And uh, having said that, let's usher in 
the co-author, the original whistleblower, left at Eastgate a first-hand account of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, Larry Warren. Good to speak with you again. How are you? Good to hook up with you, Richard. It's been a while. Again. Yes. It's been a while, man. Larry, it's been uh, closing in on the 36th anniversary, of course, uh, just before yeah. Christmas, December 1980. Uh, do you mm. ever get, do you ever get tired? Uh, do you want to, any part of you want to put it behind you for good, the Rendlesham Forest uh, incident? I mean, you were the original whistleblower. I am the whistleblower. There's, you know, I got, uh, you know, just sum it up. I got the Holt memo out with help. And it just happened that way. And I got the whole audio tape into America because people in England were trying to sell everything. And, you know, and I, mean, I, I served with these guys, you know, so to me, it was my brothers. I mean, but this thing just, uh, Richard, uh, there was no plan other than I can remember Adrian Bastin's and everyone knows his name, is that in 81 in March, we were in his uh, dorm. He was not in the same building as myself. Two buildings away, and we, his, his friend, at that time Cindy Schultz, you know, said Buzz wants to see her, Busty, I knew him as. Well, we should mention that, that Adrian was a sergeant. He was a security police commander, and, and, yeah, and uh, yeah. he, he investigated the incident at the time. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, but he, he got burned real bad, you know. And so, and, you know, and I was with Adrian. I was kind of new flight. It's like you hear about, uh, you always hear about Penniston and Burroughs, but people forget that Eddie Cabanasack was there. Mm. And, you know, Halt spent, you know, Colonel Halt, he was our deputy base commander. He was a nice guy back there. I got to say, I'm not going to trash him like he does me. But, uh, and uh, Eddie Cabanasack and I went through training together, went through our leave together at the same time. We got in the base and we got on our flights together. And he went through the night one, but he was on a different flight. Well, I, I was Maybe. I was just going to ask you about you know if you were sort of if you ever get tired of talking about it, but let's um, let, let's just go right to the let's you go to that. Never get away from it. No, you can't. You just you can't. You just won't. No. Oh, but, no. But, but and that's okay. Okay, so then for those not overly familiar or too familiar with the story, take us back to late December 1980 and and uh, first sort of yeah. set the scene. Rendlesham Forest, Suffolk, England. Why are you there? I mean, tell us about. Uh, the uh, you know the RAF and the U.S. Joint uh, Air Force. Well, I was I was in the U.S. Air Force, and I joined up in '79 because of if you ever saw the movie Argo, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it was the only good movie. What's the the tall guy from Boston? I forget. Ben his Affleck. Name, but, ben Affleck. Yeah, yeah. I got to tell you what, I've never could take him serious in anything until I watched that film, and I said, my God, and that whole thing with the hostage situation, you know, a lot of people are young now and don't remember it, but that began 400 plus days, of, and I, I know what they did to them because I was security when they came back to Germany uh, when they were released, so that that was my spark to enlist, and I, I knew the Navy wasn't going to work out for me because uh, I get seasick, and um, so I went in the Air Force. And I went, I went in the security forces, which they back then they called security security specialists. And then there was like Burroughs with law enforcement. He was like a copper, a police busy you know, on the beat. We were combatants. We, we had all the big guns and we protected the assets. And we were trained to keep an eye out for a Spitznat, Alpha Team Spitznats and all that to come in. You know, and we were trained very well. So, you know, unfortunately, when you get in the UFO thing, you know, 
people have never served an inch, you know, try to, you know, because they hate UFOs and or whatever that threatens them in the world because they haven't lived any of it, is that, uh, unfortunately, um, you know, we, we were trained killers and we were trained to kill. I mean, that was what we were there to do, protect assets. Someone tried to take or harm them, we kill them. Right. Or they kill us. I mean, that's the military. It's no, we weren't young airmen. We were very different people than, you know, from the day we enlisted, you know, went to basic training to after we got out of our, um, you know, in, into our AFSCs, which was our job. And so you had the, and, you had the, um, you had the RAF, um, uh, base at Woodbridge and you yeah, had well, the we U.S. Did, we had that base since World War II. Right. And it was, it was a Royal Air Force Bentwaters and right. Royal Air Force Woodbridge. And it was a twin base complex. Uh, very quickly for time, we had uh, a back housing of tactical nuclear weapons. That is a big issue in this. I'm the only one that talks about them. That's and true. I lost my passport. That's <laughs> true. I've asked Peniston about and it, and, and he would Adrian neither confirm nor deny. Now, well, the dear Sergeant Bastinza, who lives in Texas, and my dear old friend, and he came out and said it too. And I think some of the guys on pensions that have been paid off and whatever, and kind of portray an image, you know, and I'm just saying things without saying things, you know what I'm saying. Right. But uh, I think I did a radio show with my dear brother, not, well, six months ago, maybe five, I forget things at 55, how many months, but we did it and it really, and this is the first time this cat has ever spoken. Right. And then, you know, and he's put things on paper and all that, but that don't mean much to people, you know, that people that just want to attack people, you know, on the internet. See, I'm not from this internet world, man. No. You know, I'm but I from, should, I, uh, we should point out, Larry, that, that this is quite a, an admission that there were, in fact, tactical nuclear uh, yeah, missiles because yeah, because Great Britain uh, was not supposed to have any on their soil, right? Well, I think the government knew it, but right, I mean, of course officially they did. the, the right. people didn't know right. it, Richard. And, and at that time, we had the CND, which was the in England, you know, against nuclear weapons, which, right. you know, that's... It's fair play, you know. Unfortunately, you should be telling the other people, too. And our base was the first strike option. In five, ten minutes, we were going to be glass anyway if that went off. Right. And this is and height came, of the Cold War. The Soviets yeah. are gathering around the border with Poland because of the whole solidarity uh, movement. So tensions were incredibly high that December. Richard, you're getting an A on your report card. You <laughs> know your fact. Well, that is true, and it's a historical fact. Now, young people would probably not know that. They're worried about Bernie Sanders in my country or Hillary or the other fella, and, but they don't know these things. You know, so there's a whole post-war history involved with this, too, that people can track and look and say, wow, I mean, this, whatever went down went down at a very heavy time. And it was a very heavy time. Indeed. And so we were there. I was new. I was on post for a couple weeks, I guess. And you get on the base and you, you get familiar with the base and you have classroom. I remember, you know, for context with people, younger people, John Lennon was shot in New York and I was in a classroom on Woodbridge, you know, and here we heard about it in the morning. And um, then that you know, we, we just got familiar with the twin bases and then we were posted. Now, this is so many lifetimes ago for me, but you know, it, I was 19 year old guy 
And uh, but I was there for a reason. I wanted to be there. We just didn't do it for the lark. And I think a lot of people that you know kind of float around the internet, you know, dealing with UFOs or make their comments without any background, without anything. And they, they don't make comments. They make pronouncements. Right. They they are knowers of everything. You know, I, I used to tangle shoelaces with Philip Class, man. Ooh. You know, these you know, mm. the great arch debunker from America where right. he was a wrote for Aviation Week magazine. Right. I've been in this game since nineteen eighty three. I knew Alan Heineck, right. I knew him all. There was no one like me that came in. The only other guy was Travis Walton. And Travis was quiet at that point, but yes, I knew was. about Travis since that happened to him, you know. Right. And uh, But when this happened, and I had a lifetime of weird things going on in my life, not by choice, but it's funny enough, a lot of the witnesses to Rendlesham, and it's not just me, Burroughs, Penniston with the time travel, that's his bag. I know nothing about it. It was. I've, I've seen things on this Toronto gig I'm going to do. Are we getting a resolution to the, um, you know, binary code? Listen, that had, that was two nights before my involvement. Only Jim talks about it. I don't know nothing about it, but he has his own sick, crazy internet people going. Hey, listen, he's a brother in the end. We served on the same base. I knew Jim before this stuff happened. I knew him after. That's his bag. Now, I'm not going to knock any of the guys there because we've all been fighting each other, and that's what the federalities, frankly, want us to do. Right. Now, in Canada, I have never spoken in Canada, ever, man, and I'm from New York. I've never been there. I've, I've been to Canada. You know, I was in a motorcycle club. We go up there a lot. But Larry, Larry, I got to jump in here. I got to jump in here and, mm -hmm. take, and uh, take a break. But let me just remind you, uh, people, you're coming to Canada, Toronto, Sunday, yeah. August the 21st, at the JJR McLeod Auditorium. This is your debut, a lecture. You're going to talk about uh, Rendlesham Forest, what went down. You're the original whistleblower. Uh, you're the one that brought this to the world's attention. And uh, we will um, look forward to that. It's, Again. it's not going to be a, a lecture, though. It's kind of like an evening with George Carlin and Bill Hicks' ghost <laughs> with a little Lenny Bruce thrown in. Right. And everyone can interact. And if you've got vegetables, if you don't dig what I'm doing, throw them. I don't care where it's going to be happening, man. I'm not right. a researcher. Okay. I, I've we, been in this. Okay, That's we gotta, what I am, man. All right. Larry Warren stays with us. We'll take a time out, come back, and continue this uh, jazz conversation. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. We are here with Larry Warren, the original whistleblower, eyewitness experiencer of the infamous Rendlesham Forest, RAF Bentwaters UFO event, and of course uh, the co-author along with Peter Robbins of Left at East Gate, a first-hand account of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, its cover-up, an investigation. That's the name of the forest, folks, is Rendlesham Forest. But in our days, that was just woods. It right. didn't mean beans to us. Right. I was based on Bentwaters. All the security forces pretty much lived on Bentwaters. Just give us a taste and, in, a, in a few moments uh, of what yeah. you saw. Uh, no problem. No problem. I uh, was 19, and we had an alert going on on the base, which is proven. And there had been two previous nights of activity, and that would have been the famous one where Sergeant Penniston 
says he touched the craft. I don't say he didn't and did all that. That wasn't my experience and got the download and Johnny Burroughs was there. And what they never mentioned is a guy named Ed Gavanasak, who I trained with, was also there relaying radio information. And my reporting official was Bud Stephens, and he was on the road, you know. And then a lot of people photographed things, and there's a lot of people don't know. In fact, when Peter and I wrote our book um, over 11 and a half years and a billion dollars, and which aliens gave us in space gold, <laughs> now people will believe that, you know, you got to be careful. I, I send that out to the Internet crowd. Uh, it's just not my world, man. Uh, but... Um, you know, the bottom line is, is that I was responded to something I thought was an exercise. And Sergeant Bestinza drove us out there. I didn't know him well then. But he happened to be with me through, not just me, a lion's share of what, when we finally got to this place called Capel Green, which is an open field. It wasn't in the trees. And mind you, you know, all these people, you know, they build these touristy things and everything in Rendlesham Forest, but that forest is not the forest that was there in 1980. It was wiped out in 87 right. in a hurricane, you know, allegedly, and, you know, all that kind of thing. So there's a lot of myths, and, you know, you can't control it, you can, you know, and then you become the devil, you know, or Ayatollah Khomeini, because, you know, you're correcting people because you were there, and that's bad, but... I was there, and I lived it, and I knew the time, and I knew Adamant was really popular at the time, and the police song, <laughs> Walking on the Moon. Right, and right. for you Canadian folks, do you know I partied with the band Max Webster in 79? Kim Mitchell. Oh, yes. I did. There you go. And I'm a giant John Candy fan. All, all right, you've established your bona fides. You can come into the country. Well, that's we'll all I need. Okay, you're in. Those arrest things, I hope they just ignore them. I love John Candy. I look at John Candy, and, you know, Danny Aykroyd is who I hear is in Ontario, and I hope anyone can reach out to him. I'd love him and his wonderful wife can come because that wonderful Canadian uh, was on the Rosie O'Donnell show. I guess you don't say that much. And I'm in a bar, and, of course, in 1998, maybe, and he's on promoting Blues Brothers 2000 with John Goodman. This is a true story for mm -hmm. about a great Canadian who I met in 82 in Lake George, New York, 81, I think, 81, and uh, with his wife, Judy. But um, dear Danny, the great Canadian from Ontario, I think he lives there, and I'd love him. North of there in Kingston, north of here. Yeah, just north of here. Well, I hope he, I hope he gets his ass down and brings his vodka, because this guy didn't have to do this. He's promoting a movie. And he goes, she goes, what else are you doing? He goes, I'm reading this great book. And he pulled out Peter and mine's book, Left at Eastgate, on national TV. And he's only done that for Timothy Good, Above Top Secret. You know, I've, ne I've met Dan and years before that. And I would love him and his dear wife, because he, he asked for me with Peter in a thing Bud did some years ago, Bud Hopkins. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what a great man. And, you know, you can't, you know, these are my heroes. They were the Beatles for us in the 70s. Sure, sure. And I think well, I lifelong, yeah, he's had a lifelong fascination with with the subject matter for sure. And, you know, uh, I, I would rather just talk about music and blues and, you know, rock and roll with that. But he does, he always keeps an eye out on this. And, you know, he did that for us and he didn't have to do it. And that's one of my heroes that did that. It right. was an honor in my life. And I hope he hears this. 
Thank you, Dan. And I really do. That was really, and it really shut up everyone in that damn bar. They were <laughs> jaws dropping, looking at me. I go, uh huh. There you go. It was what an amazing experience in my life. Yeah, people at, at my generation, if they're young, they they don't know the impact that Belushi and Aykroyd had on us, and uh, they really just. You know, they were on Saturday Night Live in America, and then we had Second City Television out of Ontario, you know, Toronto. That's right. And, um, you know, all those great people, and they, they really just made our times. And uh, that's all I can say. You know, I thank them all. If any of them hears it, thank you. All right. So bring us. I, I, that gives me joy. UFOs and Bentwaters gives me no joy. I can imagine. Uh, you know, and, and that might strike people as being odd but i mean that would send you on a on a trajectory that you didn't necessarily plan on and and you know seeing things like that would could, ruin my would, life man. i would damage you i could see they would damage you absolutely total damage total damage so what what did you see though larry things. just give us a glimpse of what you saw that night i saw a thing on the ground and i was with yeah, a number of people and they were filming and photographing it in this field and there was a glowing object on the ground and they try to blame this on a lighthouse and whatever these clouds. England is the worst. They're like 50 years behind with open thinking. I'm sorry, folks in England that hear this. I mean, there are good ones and then about 80%, man. They're, they're in, you know, 1926 with this shit. But at the end, can you say shit in Canada? I don't know. <laughs> well, we just, but, did. uh, you just edited that leap. But at the end, um, you know, you go through this, and that was one thing, because you don't know what you went through. And I, I saw an object on the ground. I didn't see anything fly in and land. I saw something that was one thing, a red light, and it became a different thing. It caused flash and retina burns to my eyes and to others, a lot of physical health effects. And I saw something that was non-human. Now, that is a point of contention, you know, because, mm -hmm. hey, Someone builds these things, right? So I did, and I, I can't, you know, you describe them, you end up, Rich, sounded like a B science fiction movie, because even in our book, I was so frustrated, I go, there's only four words you can describe the phenomena with. I think anyone's been through it in real life, not the, I'm crazy, let me explain it by saying I've been through this. I'm talking about the real folks. You're kind of limited in the lingo. And so at the end of the day, I... um I saw something alive. Now, when Adrian and I, not long back, did a show with another witness, John Burroughs, who was there that night, on the third night, he was involved in the boat nights. And Adrian put that phenomena all around me, meaning these light things, people, whatever they are. Well, I think that upset certain people that wanted this to go a certain way. Right. Now, Frank, I'd be happy if he said, no, man, you were asleep back in the barracks, man. <laughs> and that would have been okay. You know, this is where people get it wrong. You know, I sit here every day not going, oh, I pulled that off. We've never made any money out of this. You want to make money, this ain't the road to go, man. No, I mean, as and, you say, it wrecked your life. It wrecked your life. Well, yeah, you know, I lost jobs. I mean, I did the CNN. I'm going to show that in Toronto, which people forget. But And you'll see witnesses that don't talk because they don't want to go through what I have. You've got the golden child right now is Johnny Burroughs. But people aren't asking hard questions. And then you got Jimmy Peniston, who has the time travel and the message from our brothers in the future. 
Oh my God, man! And then, you know, well, and then and we have your your story, Larry. Here, yeah, we, I say, and then we have your story, and we're going to get that. Well, my uh, story is other guys too that right. you know say quiet. We don't have any answers for humanity, and that's my old man used to tell me, Rich. If someone tells you they know the answers to everything, stay away. from That's them. right. Run in the other direction, Larry. We got to we got to run ourselves. But I'm going to uh, once again remind. Uh, listeners, Sunday, the 21st of August, 1 to 4 p.m., J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium. Larry Warren will be there, the original uh, whistleblower on the infamous Rendlesham Forest uh, UF, or sorry, RAF Bentwaters UFO event. And, of course, he is also the co-author, along with Peter Robbins, of Left at Eastgate, a first-hand account of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. Larry, uh, great connecting with you again. I hope to see you on the 21st, and thank you so much. For Which this. I do too, brother, and I hope my brother Matt Haler in Ontario, who has Bigfoot living on his property, comes down. <laughs> All right, I'll have to he get does. him on the I'm show. I'm not kidding. Really? All right, let's uh, let's connect so I can get him on Canada, the show. I love Toronto. I can't wait to meet everyone. I hope there's more than three people there. Jesus. <laughs> not to worry, Larry. It'll be packed to the rafters. Larry Warren. God help us. All right. Love you all. Thank you, sir. When we come back, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, Paranormal News Roundup. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. It is that time of the month for our Paranormal News Roundup. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a leading expert in the metaphysical and paranormal fields with more than 60 books published on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias and reference works. Her work is translated into 15 languages. Her current work focuses on interdimensional entity contact experiences, the afterlife and spirit communications, contact with extraterrestrials, aliens and non-human intelligent beings, problem haunting, spirit and entity attachments, psychic skills, dream work for well-being, spiritual growth and development, angels, past and parallel lives, an investigation of unusual paranormal activity. She's worked full-time in the field since 1983, and her new book is Haunted by the Things You Love, along with her co-author, John Zaffis. Rosemary, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hi, Richard. Well, I'm busy as ever, and in fact, John and I are putting the finishing touches on a second book, that will be out uh, in a short time called Demon Haunted. And we're continuing with um, stories about haunted people, haunted places, haunted land, and also some very personal revelations from John concerning afterlife messages from his deceased uncle, Ed Warren. Oh, all right. Now, John has the, the mu- is it John Zaffis that has the Museum of Haunted uh, Articles? Yes, it's called the Museum of the Paranormal, right. and uh, he, he does have thousands of objects. So um, uh, we've been working on that for a while. It's going to go into kind of the darker end of things uh, where people have problems that are very difficult to resolve, and I think it's going to be an eye-opener for a lot of folks. Well, I'm guessing that John Zappas has, uh, uh, amongst his, his vast collection of paranormal artifacts, a few creepy cursed dolls. Uh, which is sort of the, 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 uh, the subject of our first story. And you've talked about this on the program, uh, and I've had many phone calls, people with creepy cursed dolls. Uh, there's one in particular that's mentioned uh, in this uh, story from Mysterious Universe, and it has to do 
uh, with one of the most infamous allegedly cursed dolls. It's uh, Annabelle, Annabelle, a Raggedy Ann doll. What can you tell me about Annabelle? This doll was purchased as a gift, and uh, it was purchased by a mother for her daughter, and her daughter and her roommate uh, started having phenomena when the, they took this doll into where they were living. And um, something was obviously off. They would find uh, notes uh, that uh, mis- would mysteriously appear uh, that seemed to be written by a child that said, help me. Uh, the doll would move around. They would go out. They would come back. They would find the doll either relocated or in an unusual posture, even kneeling, something that uh, they could not get it to duplicate uh, on their own. And um, they were told, they uh, the phenomena escalated, and, and they uh, got worried, and they were told by uh, a psychic that the doll had become inhabited by the spirit of a little girl, a seven-year-old girl, um, who had died on the land where they were now living. And uh, the thing is that the doll uh, phenomena started getting nastier, and it took on a very uh, dramatic tone. And um, uh, a blood stain appeared on the doll, and um, one of their friends had the feeling that um, it didn't like him and and that it was going to harm him. He had some bad uh, physical experiences. Things took a malevolent turn. Now, the little girl who was dead, uh, her first name is Annabelle, and that's uh, how the name of uh, the doll uh, got its name, Annabelle. And uh, the doll literally had to be exercised. And uh, two of the most famous demonologists in the field, Ed and Lorraine Warren, were called in on the case. And uh, e- people even said that they they could see this the, uh, doll, um, you know, moving around on its own. And so. Um, they took the doll, and the Warrens had their own collection of haunted objects. Ed, Lor- Ed Warren has now passed over. He died in 2006, but Lorraine is still continuing on um, the work. And Annabelle was placed in uh, a sealed uh, compartment with a sign on it that, that said, do, you know, do not open, uh, because it, it would break the energy and possibly uh, release whatever was attached to the doll. So it um, it's probably the most famous haunted doll, and uh, these seem to be the most common objects that acquire spirits. It was the basis for the movie Annabelle, which came out a few years ago, based on the uh, the Warrens' casework. And is is uh, that's uh, Ed Warren's wife Lorraine that still has the doll? Yes, it is still in her possession. All right. Uh, they had determined that it really wasn't the spirit of a little girl. Uh, that was haunting the doll. It was a demonic spirit that was masquerading as the dead child. Ah, all right. Listen, we'll uh, take a time out. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us, our Paranormal News Roundup. When we come back, accounts of people who seem to literally be from parallel universes, plus the Nevada Triangle. All that and more when The Conspiracy Show returns. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley for our monthly Paranormal News Roundup. And Rosemary's website is visionaryliving.com. Visionaryliving.com. 
dot com. Uh, now, my uh, my good friend Tara McIsaac at um, Epoch Times, she writes um, a column called Beyond Science. And uh, this one's a fascinating piece about, uh, well, these are people who, who seem to be literally uh, from parallel universes. And this has happened several times over the last, you know, several hundred years. People supposedly turn up and they say they're from cities and countries that don't exist. Uh, they speak unknown languages. They give... Some other indications, um, some say suggest they are from parallel universes. And one such was uh, a man who's detailed in this column by Tara McIsaac uh, from 1850, a man named Jofar Voren, found and questioned in a small town near Frankfurt, Germany. Rosemary, what can you tell me about uh, 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 Jofar Voren? Well, he spoke German, but not very well, and he appeared to be Caucasian. And sort of like he could fit right in, he was a stranger in town uh, who just suddenly showed up in Frankfurt. But he said he was from a place that no one had ever heard of, and that was called a country by the name of Laxaria. And we still never heard of a a country like that, and and no country's ever been uh, discovered in any historical annals. And he said that it was located in a portion of the world, again, with another strange name, something like Sicaria, and uh, he didn't uh, seem to be um, oriented to anything around him, and he gave uh, other names of places. He said he was Christian, uh, but that it was called by something else. It had a different name, and uh, he figured that uh, Laxari was probably several hundred miles from where, where he was. So the question being, uh, you know, was he deluded? Was he a time traveler, or did he come from a parallel world? Well, we actually have a number of cases that would demonstrate more time travel than parallel parallel worlds, but these people seem to be literally displaced in time from another era, yet very much from our reality. Here's a guy who seems to be from somewhere else altogether. And uh, I do believe in parallel worlds, uh, and I think that a lot of our entity contact experiences uh, are openings between parallel worlds. So could he have sort of fallen through one of these portal areas, a weird displacement in interdimensional space? It's, uh, it's quite possible. Uh, the question is, what became of him? Uh, he said he was looking for a long-lost brother and, and that he had been shipwrecked. And did he go through something, if he was out on a ship, did he go through a storm, for example, that might have had electromagnetic phenomena in it? Uh, we would associate these things with some sort of at least time displacement, perhaps interdimensional as well. And um, he was the, the object of a great deal of curiosity, but um, we don't really know what happened to him. And uh, I find it a very interesting case. Uh, there's more detail on this than there are in uh, some other very thin cases on record of visitors from other realms. I do believe that it is entirely plausible. Well, this um, this case of Jofar Voren uh, was written up. I mean, it was such a spectacular uh, case that it was written up in the 1852 uh, annal, the year of, the yearbook of facts in science and art by an author named John Timms. And he wrote, the sages of Frankfurt on the order, after much examination of the tale and its bearer, believed it. That's quite remarkable. 
It is. And he was shown a globe because uh, they asked him, well, you know, where did you come from? Can you trace your route? And they, they showed him a globe, and he was completely unfamiliar with, with any of the geographic markings on it, the continents, the seas. Uh, it, it was just literally like another world to him. Uh, there's another story of um, uh, uh, a man in 1905 who was arrested in Paris, and he spoke an unknown language but managed to convey that he was a citizen of Lisbon, not, it should be stressed, Lisbon. Uh, what would you, is there any other details on this guy? Uh, I don't know of any, and uh, this was one of several cases that appeared in a book that um, the late Colin Wilson uh, co-authored with James Grant. And, uh, in fact, um, it's been criticized by a lot of skeptics that um, <clears throat> Wilson may have generalized um, something, picked something up from somewhere and just kind of generalized it without uh, researching the details. I would like to know more about it myself. But, you know, the thing is that uh, when you're looking through the historical records, uh, there are a lot of references to uh, very strange occurrences and phenomena that don't have much detail attached to them. And then it's uh, often impossible uh, to find corroborating sources, uh, especially due to uh, just literally the lack of written records in earlier times. Uh, there, there, another uh, case that's detailed in this book by Wilson and Grant, again, not a lot of details, but it's um, a 1954 passport check in Japan allegedly produced a man with paper issued by the nation of Tored, T-A-U-R-E-D, the man from Tored, as, he be, as he's become known. And here again, that's another case with uh, without any supporting documentation to it, and uh, it has, um, you know, skeptics have have uh, felt that they have debunked it uh, because of that. That this was something that might have even been um, been made up, but we don't know. The jury's simply out on it. And uh, with a case like uh, that from 1850 in Germany, uh, the Voren man, uh, I don't think we can dismiss these things just out of hand. Well, theoretical physicists are quite certain uh, in the existence of the the multiverse. In fact, there is a um, there's a theoretical physicist in in England, I believe, at Oxford, uh, who has uh, written about this and said, once we can develop quantum computing, we will be able to prove the existence of um, parallel universes in the multiverse. So we're getting close, Rosemary. We are, and, and I believe that science will be able to demonstrate that. I've always believed, just from uh, a, uh, an anecdotal uh, research perspective, that uh, parallel worlds exist to account for, uh, that most of our experiences account for the existence of parallel worlds, uh, including the entities we encounter, the aliens, the fairies, the mysterious creatures, and just unknown beings. I want to talk to you about uh, the Nevada Triangle. Now, I've been you know, to Nevada many times. I've been to Death Valley. I've been to the, um, you know, near Area 51, not not exactly to Area 51, but I've been close. Uh, a lot of mystery there all on its own, Area 51. But now we're talking about sort of the Bermuda Cousins, or the Bermuda Triangle's cousin. We're talking about this vast expanse of, of desolate landscape. I think it's about 25,000 square miles uh, where a lot of uh, airplanes and, and jets and so forth simply vanish. What can you tell us about the Nevada, the Nevada Triangle? It is a very strange area, and it's huge, of course, out there in the desert uh, near the Sierra Nevada Mountains. 
And uh, supposedly uh, there are accounts that <clears throat> planes go missing, people go missing, and they're never found again. Uh, and I do believe that there are these very strange areas that warp space, warp physical space and interdimensional space. And so uh, talking about parallel worlds, would it be possible that someone could go through an Alice in Wonderland kind of uh, doorway and not be able to come back? Uh, then others counter that, well, these areas are so huge and full of very unusual and often violent weather patterns, so uh, that could explain the disappearance of planes. And then when you're dealing with such a huge area of desert, it's just simply difficult to find people. So it may be a little bit of, of both. And uh, uh, also when you consider that these areas also are full of reported encounters with unknown beings, there's a lot of UFO activity reported, mysterious lights in the sky. In other words, you have a whole host of unexplained phenomena going on. It puts the concept of literally missing in space and time uh, in, into a plausible reality. And uh, there was that case in 2007, the adventurer Stephen Fawcett, who yes. uh, was a, an experienced pilot, an adventurer, and he was also off in hot air balloons a lot. He was a and, member of the uh, uh, the Explorers Club and, and the Royal Geographical Society. I mean, he he obviously uh, is not you know someone you would think would would uh, would would get lost, but um, he was very experienced. And that he would also know the weather patterns of this area. These uh, apparently there are uh, almost like sheer uh, wind downdrafts that can run almost perpendicular to each other and, and create very uh, unusual aerial conditions. And uh, but he was a, the kind of pilot who would have been very experienced and knowledgeable about that. And he went missing in uh, September 2007. Uh, took off on what was going to be a very short um, flight and uh, never showed up. And uh, there was quite a search for him for quite a long time. Nothing was ever found. And then uh, it was uh, a, just a little over a year later that a hiker was out in this area and found some of his belongings out in the wilderness. And uh, there uh, uh, was some uh, uh, some bones found um and um, the bones were determined to have belonged to him and so what really did happen to him um, was it a normal crash or did something unusual happen to him uh we'll never really know the answer but these are very tricky areas and uh we've got one in Massachusetts called the Bridgewater Triangle the Bermuda Triangle of course is famous for uh, weird activity that adversely affects ships and planes. Now, getting back to the Nevada Triangle, um, and, and these are, I mean, Fawcett was, this was a single engine uh, aircraft, but there have been, you know, there have been large uh, aircraft that have disappeared. Um, I think B-52 bombers and, and, and things like that. And things that you would expect wouldn't be that hard to find. I mean, we're not talking about uh, something that sinks to the bottom of the ocean here. So, I mean, what other theories? Is it possible that these aircraft get too close to, let's say, Area 51 and they get shot down? My, my personal theory is that uh, it's some sort of weird, unexplained phenomena. Uh, I don't think they get shot down. Um, I think that um, they, they encounter something that uh, this planet has 
uh, all kinds of anomalies on it that I think are linked into these parallel dimensions and otherworldly uh, realities. And almost like crossing the bar uh, of a dangerous river that flows out in the ocean, there are these these uh, nexus points where uh, you can become in great danger of uh, literally dematerializing. And uh, that's my personal theory, just based on a lot of accounts that I've read in, in some of these areas, that that might be one explanation that, that could account for this. Easy to lose a small plane against the backdrop of a very brown and plain desert. But, you know, like you pointed out, Richard, how do you misplace something like a B-52? Right. And we're talking about, from what I understand, 2,000 incidents, 2,000 missing aircraft over the last 60 years. So, uh, Which is... And- uh, Again, here we have this anomaly. I mean, it, it's too high to be um, just plain accidental. Something's going on there. All right. Uh, I don't know if we have time to talk about the uh, the Jersey Devil, but uh, I'm a hockey fan, and um, I, I never actually, until a couple of years ago, actually figured out why they, they're called the New Jersey Devils. And but this is you know this is based on a, a legend, the Jersey Devil that supposedly inhabits the the. Uh, the, the pine forests of New Jersey. People think of New Jersey as, you know, Newark and, and these built-up cities, but there's a lot of remote areas in New Jersey. Is this, what, what can you tell us very quickly about the Jersey Devil? Pine Barrens, a southern uh, coastal area in New Jersey. Um, famous cases going back in time of a creature that looked like a combination of basically a horse and a dragon. Uh, and sometimes with a little bit of goat features in it, and uh, was said to fly around in the Pine Barrens at night. And uh, people have actually had encounters with the New Jersey Devil, not just in New Jersey, but elsewhere as well. I ran down a case in in West Virginia. And uh, we have an eyewitness account here where a teenager was driving through these uh, uh, Pine Barren forests at night, and all of a sudden she sees this creature uh, literally sitting uh, incredibly on blueberry bushes, this huge creature sitting on blueberry bushes. Already we've got something otherworldly going on, because how could something of mass rest on the top of blueberry bushes? And uh, it had um, uh, a very weird look in its face. It was kind of in a crouch. It had um, a huge head. It was larger than a person. And uh, it had hind legs like an animal. And uh, it took when it took off, it, it got startled. It looked at her, took off. She didn't see wings, but she heard what sounded like wings. And this is very consistent with um, New Jersey devil sightings throughout the ages. So New Jersey's always been a state with a lot of weird stuff in it. And New Jersey devil, that's one more piece of evidence to that fact. There you go. Rosemary, thank you so much. Always great to talk with you. Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Thank you, Richard. VisionaryLiving.com. All right, that's it for us. Thank you, Ian. Thanks to uh, Albert, Jonathan, Franz. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.